It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode 32. I don't think this damn thing is safe. For the people in the back, it's Noah Diamond up here. I can't believe that I'm here today. It's not the Marx Brothers Council Podcast that gets to me, but I can't believe that I know Matthew Conium and Bob Gassell, and that they asked me to introduce them today, and I'll do that as quickly as possible. I first met Matthew Conium in the projection room at 10 Downing Street, running monkey business, and he did quite some business with that anklet. Matthews and Coniums, please welcome Matthew Conium. Thank you. Hello. It's 32 of these, did you say? <laughs> 32? We've done 30. Have we really? <laughs> yeah, more flavors than Baskin-Robbins. Wow. There used to be a tough critic in Chicago, so let's keep it on a high basis. Please welcome a celluloid dicky, an eight ball, and three razor blades, Bob Gassell. No flash pictures, or I'll drop my pants. <laughs> well, uh, woe unto those who haven't yet figured out that this episode is all about An Evening with Groucho, the 1972 concert tour and LP that comprised the last significant work in the career of Groucho Marx as a performer. We'll talk about the concerts and the history surrounding them, and we'll dive deep into the contents of the record. And we will do so in a style that columnist Nick Thomas recently called astonishing academic detail that remains entertaining and amusing. Well, that's his opinion. <laughs> but because the evening album is such an impactful item in the Marx Brothers library, and it tends to elicit mixed feelings, uh, I thought I'll maybe say. we would start. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start with you then. Let's start with our personal experiences. Bob, when did you first encounter this record and what did you think of it? Okay. Well, first of all, I'm the only one here who heard this album when it first came out in 1972. Um Therefore, I have a, a, how should I put it, a complicated uh, relationship with it. Um, you know, I uh, I understand the affection that many fans have, and I understand its historic importance, but you have to put yourself in my shoes. I was 12 years old, and I had been a Marx fan for a year or two. I'd seen most of the movies. I don't think I had seen any Marx appearance or photo after the 1940s. So you have to imagine what it was like for me to hear this million-year-old voice coming through my speakers. Hello. I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. You have to remember that this was before You Bet Your Life had its big uh, resurgence, so I wasn't even familiar with that Groucho, much less this one. So... You know, it really was tough for me. I, I I don't even think I made it through the entire album at first. Um, obviously, since that time, I've come around and learned to appreciate it somewhat on its own terms. But, you know, some of that original pain uh, still lingers. Um, as Matthew says about, you know, some of the Marx's lesser works, he's glad we have them. Yeah, I'm glad I have this, but that doesn't mean I'm going to play it very much. <laughs> Have you, how often, if at all, have you listened to it since your original encounters with it? It's been, it's been decades. I mean, I, I, I put it on and, you know, it's not nearly as disturbing for me now as when I first heard it. Uh, 
you know, I've learned more about Groucho and I've had more experiences watching and seeing him grow older. So it's not as much of a shock. And there are certainly things he did after this, which are a lot more depressing. So, you know, when I turn it on and go, oh, it's, you know, it's not as bad as I remember, but, you know, it, it's, it's still a tough listen for me and it's more for historical purposes or getting this podcast out purposes. I'm certainly not going to put it on for a night full of laughs. I'll put on a George Carlin album if I want that. Matthew, in your book, That's Me, Groucho, you discuss this album as one of the later works, and you acknowledge the shortcomings and the diminished state in which it finds Groucho, but also the historicity of the document. Yes. I mean, I'm I'm the opposite of Bob in that um, I was either not born or barely born when it came out. It came out roughly when I was born. So um, I, I'm, it, it's not of, of a time with me at all. Um, but it didn't bother me as much because I was very, very familiar with what it was going to be like before I heard it. Um, having said that, apart from a few extracts in a radio documentary, I actually didn't hear it at all uh, until I uh, wrote the Groucho book. That was the first time I actually, uh, you know, sat down and steeled myself and, and said, right, I have to actually listen to this now. So it wasn't as distressing an experience as I could imagine it would have been had I had I come to it unprepared. Um, at the same time, I didn't get an awful lot out of it. And I was surprised at some of the things he chose to do and some of the things he chose not to do on it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so many of these songs and stories we've heard elsewhere and in better versions. It is in, in very many ways a kind of um, reductive greatest hits package from Groucho and me. Um, and he repeats a lot of the same stories in the Groucho file. Um, but it's true. I, in reading about it, um, I read that Arthur Marx unsuccessfully um, tried to persuade Groucho to, you know, hire writers, make a show out of it, put himself at the mm. center of more of a production. Um, and we can certainly, you can see why the results might make someone think that would have been a good idea. Do we know how many people were were intimately involved in the in the planning of it, in the running order, in what was going in, what was coming out? I mean, was it did he just sit down and do that himself, or are are there kind of uh, you know writers in quotes behind the scenes? I don't know. It it seems like it's a Groucho and Aaron production for the most yeah. part, um, and it is right at the beginning of Aaron asserting her control over Groucho. This is really Aaron's debut as his handler um among other things and um and well, it's a terrifying debut isn't it when that voice comes on <laughs> i i really think there there is a a great deal of metaphorical um dread in in her rendition of the dumont part in hello i must mm. be going i mean she's like it sounds like she's screaming at him for my sake you must Uh, it's just chilling, and um, and she doesn't <laughs> sing it pretty, and that that uh, <laughs> it only increases the eerie quality. The only thing I could find talking about the pre-production of this is a March twenty third news clipping that says that the plan was to have uh, Billy Marks, Harpo's son, be the piano player. 
Hector Arce, in his book about Groucho, says that Bill was approached, but he was very busy at the moment. He was getting a lot of work as a film composer mm -hmm. um, and just didn't have the time to go on tour with Groucho. And Marvin Hamlish was just sitting around unemployed? Yeah. Well, they, they wound up with a, quite an accompanist, actually. And mm -hmm. one of the strengths of the record, I think, is that Hamlish is such a robust mm -hmm. musical talent. Mm -hmm. um, he soon would go on to, I think the next year, he won his first Academy Awards um, for The Way We Were and for his arrangements of all the Joplin rags in The Sting. He went on to become a, an EGOT. He won all the major awards and the Pulitzer, uh, known for a chorus line and The Way We Were and, and many other things. At this moment, when he was kind of working as Groucho's accompanist, he was dating Aaron Fleming. And so that explains... Uh, yes, I'd forgotten that, yes. Yeah. Not the last person to um, get a piece of the Groucho story by dating Aaron Fleming. Um, but Hamlet certainly acquits himself beautifully at the piano, and his mm -hmm. the overture, which we'll discuss when we, when we get to the contents, is, is quite something. But in general, he's very good at following Groucho, providing, you know, wonderful fills and backing him up in a way that... Um, gives Groucho every opportunity to kind of climb on top of the music and, and put it, make a good show of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we should point out that what we're hearing on this album is not exactly the show that people saw in Carnegie. Apparently there were, I think, film clips shown. There was a question and answer thing from the audience. So we're not getting the exact experience uh, that the people got in 1972. Yeah, some of the reviews of the performances mention bits that we don't know from the album. Uh, apparently, Groucho and Aaron sang the window washer song, uh, the Kalmar and Ruby number that Groucho and Ruby had done on television. And at Carnegie Hall, the attempt to show the stateroom scene from A Night at the Opera was unsuccessful. The projector screwed up and... Uh, Dick Cavett uh, memorably wrote about um, Groucho getting some unintended laughs just by grumbling under his breath, not knowing he was on mic um, while the projector wasn't working. Uh, well, uh, let me just say for my part, when I first heard this album, although I heard it 20 years after its release, it was uh, similar to your situation, Bob. I, I was still fairly early in my Marx Brothers period and basically knew Groucho from the films. I think I had one or two episodes of You Bet Your Life, the radio version, so I kind of heard that. But, um, but I did have the same jarring experience of going from basically the MGM Groucho to the Groucho on this record. And mm. it did take me some time to get used to it, and I found it a little jarring at first. Eventually, one, one pleasant thing that I experienced with it is, you know, uh, Woody Allen's been quoted a lot saying that when he met Groucho, he thought of it as meeting one of the great geniuses of the arts, but Groucho struck him as being a lot more like his elderly Jewish relatives. He was mm -hmm. like the, the funny uncle you run into at a family gathering. And Groucho's voice and manner on this record, you know, had the same effect on me. I could see that. Oh, well, he... He doesn't sound that much like the Groucho Marx in my head, but he does sound a lot like my grandparents. And and there's a sweetness to that that um, yeah. led me to enjoy it. And I think that was my way into appreciating it. So it becomes like, 
you know, don't you wish you had sat down with your grandmother and just recorded her reminiscing for a couple hours? Mm. You wouldn't judge that by the standards of show business, um, but mm. you'd feel very lucky to have that recording. And um, that is, I think, a nice way to think about this album and a lot of Groucho's public uh, appearances during this time. Yeah, obviously, I wish I would have first heard this album when I was a bit further along in my uh, Marx fandom and education <laughs> and life, for that matter. Yeah. Well, let's dig into the history a little bit. I I want to talk about the year 1972 and, and what a banner year it was for Groucho, uh, particularly coming after this relatively fallow period, after the end of You Bet Your Life and before Aaron Fleming comes along. There's a decade there where Groucho, you know, he's working a little, he's making some appearances here and there. Um, but he he's less in demand at this moment than he has been at any time since at least the early 20s and maybe, you know, even earlier than that. Um, in 1971, in the first half of the year, he has his first stroke. And he meets Aaron in August of that year, turns 81 in October of 1971. Um, and then in 1972, under the Aaron regime, uh, it's this whirlwind of activity. In April, Chaplin gets his honorary Oscar, and at a party at Walter Matthau's house, he tells Groucho, keep warm. April 29th is the Iowa State University concert that was a warm-up for Carnegie Hall. Um, Groucho attends the press conference in bell-bottom jeans. May 6th is Carnegie Hall. May 8th, he hosts the Obie Awards at the Village Gate. May 16th, Groucho and Aaron are in France at the Cannes Film Festival getting what Americans call the Arts and Letters Medallion. August 11th, he's at the Masonic Auditorium in San Francisco, and we'll have more to say about that concert. Um, and then around um, late August, early September, the date varies in different sources, he has his second stroke, which is remembered as the one that compromised him the most. On September 20th, Hyde Gardner's newspaper column mentions that there are upcoming Groucho concert dates, not only in L.A., but also in Detroit and Chicago in October. But the September 24th LA date is canceled along with the others. Aaron tells the press it's because Groucho is upset about the massacre at the Olympics in Munich. On October 2nd, 1972, he turns 82 years old. Ten days later, he signs his written agreement with Aaron, he, giving her a weekly salary, a percentage of his gross income, and 50% of his net earnings from the Evening with Groucho LP which debuts on November 25th at number 188 on the Billboard 200 chart and stays on the charts for 15 weeks. December 11th, at the end of 1972, he finally makes up that date in L.A. with his last concert at the Mark Taper Forum of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. That is the performance that was videotaped for television, but never released. Stefan Kanfer in his book about Groucho says the videotape is heartbreaking. So in a way, it is the last busiest year of the life of Groucho Marx. And mm -hmm. this concert tour was his big comeback. Wasn't that video concert in LA, wasn't it shown one time or something? Didn't we hear that somewhere? Is that right? 
in the nineties, yeah, it was shown on a on a comedy cable channel. Like you, I think like USA Network or something. It was shown once. Something like that. Um, Jay Hopkins had it at one time. I think he's lost it, as is his way. But he has seen it, and it is apparently uh, all, all you've heard and more. Mm-hmm. It is interesting what you were saying there about how quickly it all it all kind of happened in in 72 because that sort of helps to explain to some extent doesn't it the 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 sort of halfway nature of 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 the performance he gives because prior to that he's settling into uh, elder statesman mode and he's basically uh settling into being a professional uh talk show guest um it, with the emphasis on nostalgia so so the kind of the the material he's instinctively preparing for himself are these these kind of you know little anecdotes and stories about about his past what this show is really is the relaunch of him as a as a vital comic force as as a contemporary comedian and he doesn't have the material for that. He still has the uh, the armchair material, uh, and some of the disjunction, I think, is is down to that, isn't it? Yeah. Not that he not that he could have, I presume, at that stage, learnt and performed new right. comedy material, or even that that anybody would have wanted that from him. But I think some of the oddness of the project is down to that. Yeah, I'm not sure he had that in him either. And we should also note that when he starts off, he's talking about his you know, his first days in show business. And we think, oh, okay, we're going to get a linear story about his whole life and we're going to bring it all the way up to the current day. But it doesn't really turn into that. It's basically just a bunch of random stories. It feels very much like a stream of consciousness. Yeah. Um, Although it was very much written, you know, um, when it's often been noted that he he read the show off of of, uh, index cards and uh, some years ago, when I was at the Smithsonian researching, I'll say she is, and going through Groucho's papers there, um, they have the index cards. I, I held them in my hands. Uh, the cards that I held in my hands were noted in pen. The top card says Aaron's copy. So this may have been a, it seems to be a, a faithful hand copy of, of Groucho's cards. But, you know, the, it is written almost to a to a ridiculous degree. It says, like, sit down in chair, sing Lydia the Tattooed Lady. You know, it really gives him, in no uncertain terms, a beat-by-beat um, instruction manual for getting through the show, and I, I guess he needed that. Yeah, and to piggyback on that, you know, unless he's doing a monologue by George S. Kaufman, I really don't want to see Groucho alone on stage. Uh, he's at his best when he's interacting, interacting with people. Mm. You know, we we learned that way back on your Better Life. That's that's the way to show uh, Groucho on stage. Um, you know, particularly with his age, I think maybe the best way to have done this type of performance was to have him, you know, being interviewed maybe by Dick Cavett or, or Fenneman, George Fenneman, or Zeppo, for that matter. You know. Just have him talk and interact and tell his stories that way. And the other person could take some of the uh, pressure off of Groucho to lead the show. And, you know, they could keep him online if he strays or he forgets a point or he gets lost. You know, I really think he could have used that help. And that would have been a much better uh, way to uh, put an 82-year-old Groucho on stage. Yeah, and it could be themed as well. You know, you could have yeah. Cavett for for forty minutes talking about his his uh, early years, and then you know George Fenneman could come on and talk to him about the television years and things like that. You know, and it would be I think that would have been much more um, mm-hmm. rewarding, really. 
Yeah, it's so true and, and such a good point. Groucho had no classic material to draw on, really. That was just him with an audience. I mean, I guess, yes, he could have done the speech about exploring Africa, but, you know, that gets you through two or three minutes. Um, because, yes, he, he never really was a solo performer. And he doesn't have stand-up material to share. He just has these reminiscences. The only person he really shares the stage with at Carnegie Hall um, is Aaron, who's not equipped to to um, to to be a a scene partner for him in any way, and Hamlish, and some of the nicest moments on the record are the seemingly yeah. spontaneous interactions with Hamlish, and a couple with the audience too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's very true. Groucho alone is already a, a little bit of a problem. Um, on the other hand, there is a kind of integrity to it. Um, this is a review of the record album that appeared in the New York Times uh, on January 14th, 1973. It was written by Henry Edwards. This is one of the points he makes. Groucho did not attempt to recreate the characters, antics, and wisecracks of his past, an approach that almost always ends in self-parody. He simply presented himself as he is now, a somewhat physically enfeebled octogenarian performer whose long and fertile career has involved many unusual people in a collection of unusual moments. Speaking slowly and softly, the comedian worked his way through a stream of consciousness series of unrelated anecdotes, pausing along the way to sing eight of his favorite songs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, an in, uh, the, that's a romantic way to look at it. and as many of the fans are inclined to see it as romantically as possible. Oh, it's an evening with Groucho. It's an evening sitting in his living room, in other words. Mm. He isn't really going to much effort to put on a show for you. But if you want to show up on this night, he'll be speaking for two hours. (laughs) Softly. (laughs) Softly, yeah, and slowly. (laughs) The uh, adoration of the audience is something always talked about when people remember these concerts, and it's very apparent on the record. Um, even though Groucho is um, in this dimmer state, you know, there's really nothing he can say or do that won't get rapturous response yeah. from the audience. Yeah. And, um, you know, it makes me happy to hear him getting that response because we know how important it was to him. And presumably it did make some of this worthwhile. Yeah, uh, you know, and it's quite obvious here that while there are a number of legitimate laughs Groucho gets and, you know, good reactions. There are also quite a bit of, uh, how should I put it, uh, polite response, yeah. polite laughter, polite applause. Yeah, I mean, it, it is the definition of a captive audience, isn't it? One that they've, they've come in and, and uh, you know, there's, as Noah said, you know, there's nothing he can do that they won't like. But you still do do sense a, a measure of strain, um, you know, and, and just willing him to, to be funny. Yeah, you know, Matthew, we've talked about this in earlier shows about how uh, when they were doing the road tours in some of these smaller places like Salt Lake City, how they might not have gotten legitimate reactions to their uh, material because people were just so glad to see, you know, the famous Marx Brothers in their town. And I'm just wondering whether it's, you know, that same phenomenon here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people that were there say that, you know, just the, the, the atmosphere of the night carried, carried him along, you know, far more than, than is, uh, you would sense from the record. The record, in, in, a, in, a, in a way, you know, is, um, is only half or less of the, of the show, isn't it? And perhaps it is good that we don't have a film or video of him reading off the cue cards, because that might be even more bothersome watching on film. 
Yes, I, that's true. That's a point you make, and that's me, Gracho, Matthew, that it, whether this was the thinking behind it or not, it was probably very smart to make this available only in an audio form um, because you can sort of supplement visually in your mind a, a more limber Groucho, and particularly the moment when he he narrates his destruction of a violin in honor of Jack <laughs> Benny. Yeah. He says, I, I thought it'd be a good idea to break this over my knee and then jump on it. Uh, well, when you picture Groucho doing that, you picture yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a young and vital Groucho. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as, as Bob knows from these podcasts, it just gives you so many more options uh, editing-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, 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 to take out the pauses, punch up the beats, uh, you know, use a bit of this show, a bit of that show, which you obviously could never do in with a with a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although the amount of of usable material might be indicated by how loosely edited the record is. I mean, undoubtedly, the editing is a big part of of how it comes across. But I was noticing, I, I've listened to it a lot in the last couple of weeks to get ready for this conversation. And, you know, the track called Heavens Above that has the story about yeah. the anklet, the track is almost a minute long, but Groucho finishes talking 20 seconds into it. And the rest of it is all just the adoring response <laughs> to a lot, to it, to a story that feels rather incomplete. Um, although the joke does come across. Yeah. Uh, so when, when Groucho begins this tour in Iowa, um, it's apparently a great success. Um, it's funny that the concert tour is like these venues in San Francisco and Carnegie Hall and the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and uh, the Stevens Auditorium at Iowa State University. Um, yeah. But it was a safe place to start. Um, who is Tom Wilhite? Tom Wilhite was a student at... Uh Iowa State University, who somehow arranged for Groucho to come there and do a practice performance a week before Carnegie Hall. And apparently Groucho did not know that he was only a student. And he was surprised when he got off the plane and saw this 18, 19-year-old kid uh, waiting for him. And, and uh, But, you know, he went to Iowa, did the practice show, and he got 4000 Groucho got $4,000 for that. He got $10,000 for... Uh, Carnegie Hall. And this reminds me, you know, we go back to the Marx Brothers scrapbook and the talk uh, that Noble has with Zeppo. And they get into the fact that, you know, one of the reasons Groucho was still performing at this time wasn't only to hear the applause and get, you know, the laughter and feel great in front of the audience. He also really felt the, the need to still prove his worth by getting a big paycheck. You know, this might be a... Uh, remnant of his, his problems during the uh, stock market crash. But, you know, for him to make a, a big paycheck uh, for the concert and to the uh, record album, you know, that, that meant a lot to him. Yeah, it's amazing. to uh, The numbers from previous eras are always sort of cute and amusing now. $10,000 to play Carnegie Hall, and the top ticket price was $10. And to circle back to uh, Tom Wilhite for a moment, uh, we've contacted Tom and although he wasn't able to join us for this episode, he does want to come on. So we will be uh, speaking to him uh, sometime down the line. Mm. Looking forward to that. So as and as Groucho continues through this tour, uh, Carnegie Hall is the second show. It goes well enough to be considered a triumph and, and be spoken about that way in Groucho's lifetime. Um, 
On August 11th, um, he does the Masonic Auditorium appearance in San Francisco. And thanks to the collection of the promoter Bill Graham and a website, wolfgangs.com, you can actually listen to about 30 minutes worth of the San Francisco concert. Uh, we'll post the link at marksbrotherscouncilpodcast.com. When you listen to these excerpts from the San Francisco concert, um, what comes across instantly is it's kind of better. Groucho sounds much sharper. Um, he's quicker. Uh, there are more of what seem to be spontaneous moments of the Groucho wit. Mm -hmm. um, the liner notes for uh, An Evening with Groucho for the LP say that the record is drawn from Carnegie Hall, Iowa, and San Francisco, but there's really very little on it that sounds as good or the same as these recordings we know. Well, the section where he's talking about the T.S. Eliot funeral and he forgets the name, that's on both. So that certainly must have come from the San Francisco show. I can't imagine that was oh. a planned bit. Oh, it's identical in both places, you think? Well, he forgets oh, okay. the same name and makes the same joke after he forgets the name. So I haven't compared them back to back, but the same event happens. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I should do that. I, I've listened to the San Francisco recordings with an ear for any exactly repeated material and it didn't jump out at me that way but you're right um, it, it deserves a closer listen I wouldn't necessarily rule that out though I mean that's he, he might have he might have done that I mean it might have been genuine the first time got a good laugh and you know in the uh, in the time honoured style of uh, I'm spalding your yeah paper, yeah you know. yeah you know the first time I heard this San Francisco tape it really jumped out at me how spry he was compared to how I recalled the the, the Carnegie Hall show. But listening to it more closely, I am noticing that he is really messing up a number of his stories. And while, you know, verbally he sounds a little more quick and alert, he is getting lost in his stories. And maybe that's, a, that's just because they picked the best moments for the album. You know, it's not, it's not just so easy to say, oh, he was better at the San Francisco show. Yeah, it's not night and day. And I, and I think when the San Francisco recordings, when we all first became aware of them, I, I do think the initial effects of hearing them caused us to exaggerate how, how dramatically better they were. And I agree with you, Bob, that on subsequent revisitations of the, uh, the San Francisco recordings, I, do, I do see, all right, it's, it's not, it's not you bet your life, Groucho. It's not night and day from, from the, the record we know. But it is notably different, and I do think Groucho seems faster on his feet. He also seems to be enjoying it more. Yeah. Um, the the uh, Evening with Groucho LP, there is sometimes the sense that he is sort of summoning the will to get through it. Um, and the San Francisco uh, recordings feel a little looser. It's also raw audio, isn't it? It's yeah. not edited. And there are a couple little changes Groucho makes to jokes between New York and San Francisco. I don't know whether he just didn't remember the stories right or he wanted to be a little more politically correct because somebody got in his ear. But there are some interesting changes. Uh, we'll get into those when we get into the uh, concert meet. Uh, my favorite thing is that the uh, the Q&A portion. Uh, there's a moment where someone in the audience asks him a question. Um, I, I wish there was more of that on the record. Um, the question is, what's the greatest thrill you've ever had? And Groucho wastes no time in answering. Losing my virginity is what he says. Yeah. 
And and I hate to be this person, but do you think there's any chance this was a setup? He knew some of these questions were coming. I mean, it, I certainly wouldn't put it past them. Mm-hmm. Where's Bernie Smith? Let's get him. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they did. I mean, if they did any Q and A at Carnegie Hall, um, you would think it would have been something of that would have been on the record if it was at all. Good. Yeah, if not the whole of the fourth side, really, you know. I know what they used to do on the on the Cavett show is is um, people in the audience would have, would have write their questions on a card and then they would all be handed in and he would pick some. So they might have done that, perhaps. Mm-hmm. A few of the reactions of people close to Groucho to him doing these concerts um, is among the harshest criticism of Groucho Marx I've ever encountered anywhere. Um, now, many of them, because they are based in California – they are people who saw the L.A. performance, which is always regarded as the weakest of all of them. So so that is a grain of salt with which to take mm-hmm. these comments. But I do just want to run through them a little bit because sometimes it does feel like we're encountering the honesty of those who, who knew him best and, and had nothing to lose by being candid. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Marx Brothers scrapbook, Zeppo says, I went to see his one-man show. He couldn't remember a goddamn thing. Jesus, I think he's spoiling a great image. He's just tearing down something it took years to build. Why does he have to do it? Mm-hmm. Susan Fleming Marx in the same book says, Groucho is not there any longer as far as I'm concerned. He is now a fellow living on the wonderful earlier, truly creative wit, which he doesn't have anymore. Um, friends who are loyal enough to go to the concerts go. They sit and shudder and they are sick, but they say the audience loves it. Uh, Doris Johnson, Nunnally Johnson's wife, uh, screenwriter, friend of Groucho's, in the Hector Arce book, she says, I thought it was an acute embarrassment. It was sad for me to see Groucho exposed in that way. He was not capable of entertaining an audience. It brought tears to my eyes. Arthur Marks, in My Life with Groucho, says, I was embarrassed to see my father shuffling around the stage making a fool of himself. Um, painful words. Um, it's painful to hear all of those people talking about Groucho this way. And it feels like they're doing it out of care for him. Yeah. And, you know, the fact is that you look at some of these, uh, to Cavachow appearances he did from like 69, 70, and he does so much of the same material, uh, smoother and crisper and more energetic, you know, really, he's still really Groucho, but that stroke you mentioned the one in early 1971 that really is a, a dividing line where i think he turned from old groucho to what i call elderly groucho and you know it's easy for us to say oh you know too bad he didn't do these shows five or ten years earlier they would have been so much better but even a year or two earlier i really think it would have made for a much better show much better performance from him you can make a rival LP if you take the same stories that he that he tells in an Evening Groucho yeah. from from the soundtracks of the Cavid interviews, yeah, and 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 yeah. take you know edit Cavid out and just stitch them together, and you'll have you know a different version of the same LP, but the you know the difference is undeniable. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cavett has talked about the events of uh, the night of the Carnegie Hall concert. Um, in 2012, Cavett wrote a beautiful piece for the New York Times called They Dressed Like Groucho, um, d- describing the audience at Carnegie Hall. Uh, we'll post that link, too, on our website. Um, and this essay is also collected later in Cavett's book, Talk Show. 
But he talks about um, the Carnegie Hall evening as being maybe an exceptionally bad one for Groucho, that backstage Groucho seemed uh, particularly out of it and and perhaps really not up to it in, in a way that wasn't necessarily true for him every day at that time. Um, and Cavett, among others close to Groucho, has reported that the man's ability to dredge it up when he had to uh, was was really impressive. Um, yeah. But that he he thought Groucho was, in his words, on the brink that night. I think uh, this episode needs the Debbie Donner sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe to uh, to enliven things a little bit and remind us that uh, while everything we're saying here is true, uh, there are pleasures uh, associated <laughs> yeah, with this album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we should dig into the the contents of the LP itself. Um, and, you know, it begins extremely well. In fact, before Groucho even appears on the record, um, it's fairly pulse quickening. And I think my early listens to it as a, a, a young teenager um, had a lot to do with the overture and the Cavett introduction mm-hmm. um, as much as all the things that happen afterwards. All the same, though. There's, it's over seven minutes of it. <laughs> I don't, you know, the, the, those sides are, are about 16, 17 minutes each, and, and the first seven and a half minutes are non-Groucho. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. The overture, I, I've always really loved this medley. Um, partly, I think it's because just of Hamlish's you know, virtuosity. He just does a a very good job with it. But it's also an early, and I guess we could call it a canonical example of putting the Marx Brothers in their place with the great giants of culture. You know, Hamlisch starts off with Beethoven, Mm -hmm. a little piece of the the Waldstein, which is Sonata 21 in C major. And then that evolves into a medley of Marx Brothers songs, including uh, Hooray for Captain Spaulding and two songs from A Night at the Opera. Everyone says, I love you. While Hamlet is playing Kosi Kosa, there are these trills and accented notes that get this rapturous applause. And you, you realize, even though you can't see him, that Hamlet is shooting the keys, Chico style, <laughs> um, and gets a wonderful reaction. And surprisingly, uh, Lydia isn't performed here. But uh, we learn why, because that song's being held for later. Yeah, they save that, although there are... Marx Brothers movie songs that are missing from this album, from the overture as well as the uh, the Groucho performances. And he wraps it up with the tag from Rhapsody in Blue at the end, um, which gets a big reaction too. Yeah, I don't know. I've always just found it sort of beautiful. And when we did a night of Marx Brothers music at uh, 54 Below during Marx Fest in 2014, uh, the cabaret entertainer Bill Zeffiro uh, recreated and played Hamlish's Overture live. And uh, and it got a big reaction then, too. Um, well, then uh, Dick Cavett comes out. I was asked to mention one thing. Please don't take any flash pictures. Uh, it makes Groucho dizzy, and uh, and he could, uh, it's true, he could fall. And I, he wanted me to mention that, and I said, how can I say that and not alarm the audience? And he said, easy, tell them I'll drop dead if they do. So, <laughs> he's, uh, he's serious, but not when you want him to be. <laughs> now, when I first started listening to this record, um, I did know who Dick Cavett was uh, vaguely because of, I think I had seen Annie Hall already, so I'd seen a little piece of the Cavett mm-hmm. show um, recreated there. 
And Cav had also crossed paths with the Muppets now and then, and, and so I knew about him as a kid. Um, but I don't think I had ever seen a Dick Cavett show, um, and I certainly hadn't seen any of his interviews with Groucho. Had you seen his cameo in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3? <laughs> I had not. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I knew him from. Oh, really? Oh, that's... <laughs> First time I saw him properly, I thought, "Oh, it's that guy." For, I, you know, I assumed it was an actor playing. A, it's that guy from A Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street Three. Yeah. In Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, Forrest Gump. I guess I had not seen that yet, either. No, I don't think it was quite out yet. I think I first heard this record around 1990 or 91. Mm-hmm. Cavett's introduction is is great and classy and eloquent, as as Cavett always is. He says that Groucho's comedy achieved the level of great art, um, which again is one of those ideas that I've put on my banner ever since and that Hamlish's overture seems to point toward that. So does the physical record itself, the the record cover, which has that quote from Woody Allen on the back where he compares Groucho to Picasso and Stravinsky. Mm-hmm. So we're in a very high-minded, rarefied <laughs> atmosphere as mm-hmm. this record begins. Um, I love uh, Cavett's uh, listing some of Groucho's characters, introducing them, um, as it were, uh, Otis B. Driftwood and Rufus T. Firefly before getting to the one, the only Groucho. And during the deafening applause, um, it's one of a few moments on this record where you can hear some private talk sort of under the crowd. You hear Cavett uh, say to Groucho, they're all yours, indicating the audience, I guess. He says, they're all yours. There's a chair here if you need it. And with that, Cavett leaves the stage. And the first thing we hear Groucho say is, First, I would like to take a bow for Harpo and Chico. Harpo and Chico were the uh, departed Marx Brothers at this point. And then that's pretty much the last we hear of them, isn't it? There's not a lot of uh, of Marx Brothers talk to follow, surprisingly. Yeah. Uh, Bob, was this the first time you ever heard the Chico pronunciation? I just thought it was an old man mispronouncing it. <laughs> I think it was for me. I, I, I can't think of where I would have previously heard Chico's name pronounced. Yeah, probably, yeah. Um, I guess by the time you heard this record, Matthew, you were uh, you were well used to the Chico phenomenon. I was, yeah, because it was, it was only two or three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was just recently. Hmm. Um, uh, we've discussed uh, Hello, I Must Be Going. Well, wait, let me go back to that, because think about it. Animal Crackers had been out of circulation for 15 years. Did, did people really know the song? I mean, I guess it was on the uh, that Gary Owens album, but it wasn't on TV at that time. And in fact, I think when he when he says, um, I'll stay a week or two, that's one of the most genuine laughs, I think. That huge laugh that it, that, that gets, I think is one of the most spontaneous, genuine laughs on the, on the whole uh, recording. Yeah, exactly. It just means that many people weren't familiar with the line, you know. It was a legitimate laugh. It's like they were hearing it for the first time. Yeah, it really is. And I think partly it is genuinely funny, but I think Aaron's intensity, <laughs> followed by Groucho's kind of mild response, yeah. is part of it. Because it is abrasive when Aaron comes out mm. there, and I, I wonder how that felt in the room. And Groucho seems to respond as though he's sort of barely taking her in. It seems to turn up the laugh a little bit. Mm. Uh, very early uh, on the first side of the record, uh, he has that line talking about his first audition, which turned out to be the Leroy Trio. He says, I saw an ad in the morning world, which doesn't exist anymore, and hardly do I. So, uh, acknowledging early on what uh, 
you know, a version of what many may have been thinking listening to this for the first time. Mm-hmm. It has a bittersweet quality. Yeah. So as so as the album goes on, uh, we don't have to touch on every single detail, but um, but I've noted some moments that stand out to me as things to kick around with you guys. Um, I wonder what uh, what moments you've set aside that um, that are worth a mention. Uh, getting a round of applause for opening a cigar, <laughs> opening, uh, taking the plastic off a cigar, getting a round of applause. That's that's a that's a captive audience. <laughs> Was he still smoking at this point? I, only for show, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, only for, only for yeah, only for the public. I think that's right. But yes, it is true. You can hear the the rapper. Mm. That's true of the San Francisco recordings too. You can hear some cigar rapping um, <laughs> happening. Yeah, the the New York Times review of the Carnegie Hall appearance. Um, this review is by Mel Gusso. Um, at the end, uh, Gusso writes, as an encore, he lit his cigar and raised his eyebrows slightly. The audience stood and cheered. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sums it up. I must try that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm always um, struck by the musical performances. Um, Hamlish helps a great deal. Um, there are, you know, some Groucho mistakes. After singing Kalmar uh, and Ruby's novelty song, Timbuktu, he mm-hmm. says, I muffed a few words in there, but it's such a crazy song, it doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. And the audience says, yeah. It's a very interesting choice of songs, isn't it? I think the most, the most interesting thing about the whole album is the songs, because it's not just the greatest hits of Groucho. He is, yeah. um, a lot of thought has gone into the choice of songs, I think. Yeah, there's even some historic preservation here. It seems to be the only available recording of uh, the Toronto song. The liner notes say Irving Berlin denies he wrote it. Um, but there's little else to learn about this song out there. Wait, I'm confused. Who claims Berlin did write it? I, that's that's the only place I've found any attribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robert Bader, in his Library of Congress essay about the album, uh, repeats that, refers to it as a song Irving Berlin denied writing. Uh, Irving Berlin doesn't really come off that well on this album. There's two selections, both of which were disowned by the songwriter. <laughs> but uh, to me, uh, it's better to run to Toronto than to live in a place you don't want to is <laughs> certainly as good as the Easter parade. <laughs> So I, I was quite fascinated by this Annie Berger story, which I loved when I was reading the, the Marx Brothers book uh, a few years ago. That was the first time I recall hearing it, but I, I didn't recall that he tells the same story on this album. But I have a couple of questions. First of all, what is sauerkraut candy? Does anybody want to <laughs> clarify what that is? Yeah, I, maybe this is a German community delicacy. If you listen to the San Francisco show, by that time it's taffy. And not sauerkraut candy. So that's one adjustment. People <laughs> might have been very confused by the sauerkraut candy. And <laughs> it doesn't sound great, yeah. does it? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, well, an interesting thing in the Annie Berger story, he talks about that she had great legs and he used to watch her walk up the stairs because she lived on the floor above them. Yeah. Um, you know, it opens up the controversy about 93rd Street. It's generally accepted that the Marx Brothers lived on the top floor. So maybe Annie Berger lives on the floor above them because it's good for the joke. Or maybe, as others have theorized, maybe the Marx family moved around in the building Mm -hmm. over the years, and maybe they didn't always occupy the same apartment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, How That Woman Could Cook is an interesting song. Um, 
because it was written by Groucho's old friends, Gus and Grace Kahn, who are the maternal grandparents of Andy Marks. Yeah. Hey, when are you going to have Andy Marks back on the show? I wake up with people banging on my window saying, when are you going to have Andy Marks back on the show? And one of them is Andy. And Andy, especially, yes. Uh, yeah, it's nice that there's a con number in there. It, there's also a little Groucho bit from the later years. He did this on television sometimes, too, where he would stop a song in order to criticize the accompaniment. <laughs> Hamlish plays a little decorative uh Phil mm-hmm. and Groucho stops singing. He says that wasn't necessary, <laughs> <laughs> and Hamlish humbly apologizes mm-hmm. when he tells the Percy Hammond story about uh, Hammond's uh, bad review of the Marx Brothers in vaudeville in Chicago. Groucho says uh, this was about thirty years ago, I guess. Ooh, <laughs> he got bad reviews for the Big Star too, so maybe that's what he mixed them up, <laughs> <laughs> which really was thirty years ago. <laughs> Yeah, and there is um I, I hesitate to bring this up, but I'm going to the the, the Polish officer's story, which he tells a Polish <laughs> joke, and by the time it gets to San Francisco, it's a Hungarian joke. <laughs> yeah, Polish jokes are really inappropriate, but those Hungarians let them have it. <laughs> uh, there are a number of jokes, that kind of joke uh, on the record, you know, where you just tell a joke, guy goes into a bar kind of jokes. Um, and I guess my favorite of them is the joke that he told and, and repeats here from T.S. Eliot's memorial. Um, Groucho talks a little bit about his friendship with Eliot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he tells the joke about the man condemned to be hanged. Uh, I don't think this damn thing was, is safe. It always seemed to be a, a nice kind of a bit of existential humor. Um, but it's interesting that the recording of the actual Elliot Memorial is available. Um, Elliot's memorial service was on June 13th, 1965 at the Globe Theatre in London. And it was released um, under the catchy title, Memorial Record of Homage to Elliot, with Groucho's complete remarks and a reading of one of uh, Old Possum's practical cat poems, um, and Olivier's on the record, and Paul Schofield and others. But in the Groucho portion, uh, he interestingly he sort of doesn't tell the joke as well as he does later at Carnegie Hall. Groucho tells the joke at the actual Elliot Memorial. The man is standing on the platform. They're about to spring the trap with the noose around his neck. And here Groucho specifies this thing was kind of shaky, providing a built-in reason why maybe the gallows really wasn't safe, <laughs> even for the executioner. And and draining some of the humor out of the joke. Uh, it was a, it was a tough gig. <laughs> Our friend Steve Stolier has shared this Groucho portion of that record on YouTube. So uh, anyone who's looking to hear it, you can find it there. Uh, Groucho gets a, a pretty warm reception at Elliot's funeral too in 1965. <laughs> now let's talk about this Winston Churchill bit for for a minute. Um, I've heard the story a million different times, you know, in different books and so forth, and it's never told the same way twice. Uh, here, Groucho says uh, Churchill was watching Monkey Business. Uh, in other accounts, he's watching uh, The Big Store. I've read uh, Go West some places. I even read uh, A Night at the Opera once. And Rudolf Hess, you know, his involvement is all over the place. Sometimes he's there uh, to meet with Churchill. Sometimes it's a report that he's been captured. You know, there, there's just no um, agreement to exactly what happened here. 
Yeah, it's a reminder that the historical value of the contents of this record is about the same as as it is with Groucho's books. You know, it's all grain of salt stuff. Is there a Marx Brothers movie that you would turn off in order to negotiate peace with Germany? <laughs> the terrible thing is the, the answer is probably traceable, isn't it? It's just that the, the, the people who are interested are not the people who are able to find out and the people who are able to find out would never be interested. But I, I, I bet it would be relatively easy to go through. Uh, there must be some record of the films that he personally had sent over to his to his private rooms to watch during the war. You know, there, there must be receipts and... Maybe he has an uncut version of opera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got horse feathers. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, my guess is it would probably be their their latest film, so probably you know the big store. But I don't know. You know, I mean, he he doesn't seem to me like the sort of person who would who would have you know ten year old favorite films that he'd be having. You know, he'd want to see the new one. I think. I don't know. I guess it makes Churchill look better not wanting to be bothered watching Monkey Business. Uh, you can make a case that maybe he should get away from watching the big store. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching a Marx Brothers movie and has said, well, which one is it? <laughs> uh, we, we do have records of Hitler's uh, viewing habits. We know mm. that Hitler saw Duck Soup and watched The Great Dictator more than once. Mm-hmm. We ought to have uh, at least as good records for mm. Churchill, it seems to me. <laughs> when Groucho talks about Irving Berlin and always, one thing is that he is perpetuating a, a falsehood here. It always was not written for coconuts. It was not cut from coconuts. Um, Berlin in the 1950s even wrote to Groucho saying, why do you keep telling this story? You know, always was, was, had nothing to do with coconuts, but, but uh, it certainly is one of the, one of the legends that everyone repeats uh, in a very knowing way. Uh, I like the way when he's singing just a little piece of Always, Groucho kind of hums his way into it. Da, da, da. Doesn't it seem like he wants Hamwish to sing it? Or maybe I'm misunderstanding what's going on here. Seems like Groucho's asking Hamwish to sing it, right? I guess. I, Groucho says, as though he's kind of giving voice to the audience's thoughts, he says, sing it, you fool. Let's hear it. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. That's an, um, one of the moments that I like. It feels vaguely interactive with the audience and mm-hmm. sing it you fool the Kaufman story is also a myth isn't it unfortunately the uh, the show doctor story yeah that's not a true Kaufman story is that right I didn't know that but I, I'm happy to believe yeah. it um, it is a great line um, the producer of Bloomingdale's uh, nurturing a turkey out of town and Kaufman tells him close the show and keep the store open nights yeah so this is from uh, George George S. Kaufman and the Algonquin Roundtable by Scott Meredith. And he says, uh, unlike Dorothy Parker, who seems to have been credited with every witticism uttered by every woman in the United States between 1920 and 1970, but actually only said a few of them, George S. Kaufman was the genuine author of virtually all the funny, sardonic and wise comments attributed to him. There is, in fact, only a single famous Kaufman story which should be removed from the archives. And that is the one concerning the advice Kaufman is supposed to have given Alfred Bloomingdale. Uh, it's a funny line, but it isn't Kaufman's. It was said by another play doctor named Cy Howard, and the authority for this is Bloomingdale himself, who finally wrote a letter to the New York Times correcting the attribution when he saw it credited to Kaufman for perhaps the hundredth time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a shame that uh, of all of the things Groucho could have said about, about Kaufman, he, he, he went for that one. But there we are. 
Yeah, it's a great anecdote, and um, and and Groucho tells it very well too. I think he sort of knows he's sitting on a zinger when he gets to the end of that. There's a perfectly timed pause before close the store and keep the sh- yeah. uh, close the show and keep the store open nights. All right, well, fair enough. I, uh, that's uh, so that that parallels the Irving Berlin problem. Oh, speaking of Berlin, we should say a, a word about "Stay Down Here Where You Belong." Um, an anti-war World War One song um, that Berlin wrote in 1914 and rather quickly became embarrassed by when public sentiment changed and um, f- fighting the war became fairly common cause. Um, but Groucho persisted um, in the Vietnam era in singing this song and Berlin was famously um, irritated by it. Uh Groucho, there's a lot of elisions in this song. If you find um, any other recording of it, including the Tiny Tim <laughs> recording, which is really quite something. I'm not saying something good, but it is really quite something. Uh, there's a, quite a bit more to this song, even internally. In in the verse and chorus that Groucho sings, he, um, he skips over a line here and there. Um, but he does a nice job with it, and he sings it with conviction. Yeah. Um, the poem from Animal Crackers has always been one of my favorite things on the record. And I think one of the things that makes it stand out is that it is prepared material that was written in advance, and it is from the prime years of, of the Broadway production of Animal Crackers. Um, it appears in print in, in lots of places, including the Groucho file. Um, you know, he, he sets it up by explaining that he had to do something in one in front of the curtain to cover for a scenery change. And so he wrote this poem. Um, and it's a kind of nonsense doggerel poem with a couple of great lines in it. Mm-hmm. And it ends with Groucho uh, quoting a little bit of the 1928 song, Laugh, Clown, Laugh, mm-hmm. um, which I know we've discussed um, in an earlier uh, episode of our podcast. Uh, but to me, if uh, that would be the piece that I would play for somebody, if I wanted to give to show this album in its best light, I think I would play the poem from Animal Crackers. I think the Margaret Dumont section is interesting as well, because when you think um, there's not there's not a profusion of stuff based on uh, on the movies there, there's not a hell of a lot about about Harpo and Chico even, um, and and Dumont is sort of given pride of place, isn't she? She she's saved saved till nearly the end. Uh, and gets a big round of applause. But he has nothing to say about her. He just repeats a couple of jokes. Repeats a couple of jokes, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's clearly, that's enough. That's, you know, that's good enough for them. And uh, it's interesting that the, you know, the audience responds so warmly to to, to the mention of her. Yeah, it's true. She always was this fan favorite. And I think, um, you know, in in the Groucho file, uh, Groucho goes so out of his way to say lovely things about her and acknowledge her as the fifth Marx brother. And um, I, that warm feeling toward her seems to have been built into the Marx brothers experience uh, at this point and earlier. And it's interesting as well, isn't it? That he doesn't do any of the, uh, you know, she didn't have a clue what was going on stuff even. Yeah. Which he, which he does on the talk shows a lot, but that's, that's almost like that's sort of been dropped a bit. And a few years later, when he accepts his honorary Oscar, he repeats that. He says, I want to dedicate this to various people, including Margaret Dumont, who never understood my jokes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he doesn't go there here. He he does make it sound like she was always called Mrs. Rittenhouse. Yes. He was always called Otis. <laughs> Played Mrs. Rittenhouse in our pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
That reminds me of how there's so much distance from the film years at this point. And we know that on stage, they often just gave her the name of the fanciest hotel in whatever town they were playing. So, you know, at this point, by 1972, it's all blurring together. The fact that they, he spent a, a few weeks calling her Mrs. Rittenhouse uh, on film uh, probably weighs less than the fact that they always changed her name on the road. One little moment that I always enjoy when I listen to this, which isn't that often, when Grouch is recalling the Bond tour, and he says, you know, with some of the big stars, Hope and Crosby, and then he mentions Desi Arnaz, who gets a laugh, laugh, who gets a laugh, (laughs) like he's a big star. I guess he was, you know, in 1972, Desi Arnaz was like David Schwimmer, you know, he was just a guy on an old sitcom, so he didn't really (laughs) qualify as as a legend just yet. And also, like the way he very carefully says, uh, you know, Hope and Crosby and a lot of the big, you know, all the big, all the big stars, or something like that. He says, when really it's it's like a couple of headliners, and everyone in Hollywood who was out of work, and he was very much in the latter category, wasn't he? It's interesting. I mean, this album does occupy an interesting moment in the history of um, the public's relationship with celebrity itself, which was changing quite a bit, you know, in the late twentieth century. Um, in fact, it seems interestingly that Groucho's public image in the 1970s uh, sort of inspires George Burns's public image in the 1980s. He sort of takes over for Groucho as being the elder statesman of comedy whose main thing is reminiscing about his early days. With a Um, cigar. Yeah, with a cigar, yeah. And singing old vaudeville songs, you know, became very much part of Burns's act. Um, Burns, in a way, did a more polished version of what Groucho is doing here. Um, It's also uh, in that same New York Times review of the record written by Henry Edwards. um, It's noted that uh, the young audience, he actually calls it the pop audience. The pop audience knows that Groucho Marx is Groucho Marx superstar and therefore deserves the Mick Jagger treatment, a thunderous outpouring that not only celebrates the performer, but also allows the audience to be as exhibitionistic as it likes. Do you think that's why he threw in the uh, marijuana line about W.C. Fields? Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting from a number of angles, one of which is surely Groucho realizes that marijuana did Was around, then, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and if not, Harbo certainly could have told him in the coconuts. Yeah. yeah. Plus, plus, this is after Skidoo, so he's already crossed that barrier. Yeah. Uh, another thing I wanted to bring up is that it really speaks to the randomness of the show that when he does do a, a bit with some social commentary in it, this joke uh, about the hunchback, Yeah. it doesn't really land or it doesn't seem to fit because so many of the other things that he's doing here are just, you know, tidbits that are funny but you know don't really mean anything and here when he tries to get halfway serious about his judaism or you know it just it just doesn't seem right in in this context yeah there's a lot of those he returns to subjects that he had dropped earlier there but that one otto khan i used to be a, uh, i used to be a hunchback i used to be a jew um one of the ripples it sends through my mind is that otto khan i i don't know if this is assumed or verified but Otto Kahn is one of the models for Roscoe W. Chandler in Animal Crackers now when they get to the Samson and Delilah uh, story at the end about the knockers <laughs> um, you know it seems almost a little too off color for what I've ever expected from Groucho to do at this point in public it almost seems like something that was part of the uh, Marx Brothers scrapbook uh, recordings that you know Aaron didn't want to be released 
but again, he doesn't tell it very well, does he? The the, the version that you read is always um, I, I never go to see a film where the man's tits are bigger than the woman's, which is which is much. I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's it it's a very half-hearted version of that, isn't it? I don't know if he thought you know it was a little bit near the knuckle, but it doesn't uh, he doesn't sell it at all. Yeah, of all the great things Groucho said over his life that this one sort of makes the grade to be included in this concert is is surprising. Although I guess Cavett had already used uh, My Daughter's Only Half Jewish and, and a few others. Um, he uh, he ends strong with the priest stories. Those are always crowd pleasers. Uh, yeah, the secret word one. Yeah, that was, I like this, that. Yeah. I do think an, a, a genuine highlight is his performance of Show Me a Rose, which I think it's sort of the definitive rendition of that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and other times he recorded it, it's not nearly so uh, moving. There's a there's a moving quality to this song. Show me a rose and I'll show you a girl who cares. Show me a rose or leave me alone. The song itself, which is a Kalmar and Ruby standalone, is... Uh, somewhat mysterious and enigmatic. It, it, it seems sort of to be the unofficial theme song of Groucho's mangy lover period. And there's a certain melancholy quality um, with which he sings it. Mm-hmm. It's it's the song I think that most suits the delivery, the only kind of delivery he's now able to give. It has that, that yeah. wist, wistful quality. It's not too fast. A lot of some of the others, you know, with a lot of words packed, packed into tight spaces where he, you know, he, he gabbles a bit. Yeah. Um, and that, and that softness in his voice, the, the, just the sheer lack of volume that he's, that he's now able to produce. Um, it just goes nicely with that, with the, the lilt of that song. Very true. And Hamlish is really up to it too. He makes it, makes more of a rhapsody of it. Yeah, and actually this was the song that was released as the single from the album. Uh, the B-side was uh, Lydia the Tattooed Lady, which is what follows in the show and is the end of the show. But uh, by this point, Groucho, is, to be honest, he's quite spent. He doesn't really have it in him to, to give much of a performance of this. He's just basically dragging himself across the finish line. Yeah, there's a, a number of dropped lyrics and, and lines in Lydia, and it, it feels... Yeah, you're right. It feels like crawling across the finish line. And then the wonderful moment is the applause is fading out and Aaron's like, do you want to do some more? <laughs> he says, more what? We haven't got any more. So it's another one of these moments that's sort of inadvertently heartbreaking in a way. Well, let me ask you guys one. I'm going to throw a random question at you guys. Name one song that he didn't do, which you would have liked to have seen him do in this show. Uh, I I think uh, there's a place called Omaha, Nebraska. Um, is uh, It's one of my favorite Groucho songs, and there's not too many performances of it. It's on that album from the 50s with the Ken Lane singers, mm-hmm. um, and he, he did it on TV at least once, too. It's a song that he wrote in collaboration with Harry Ruby. And like Show Me a Rose, it's done in a kind of faux ballad style that I think he, he could have p- pulled it off very nicely at this point. And I think he could still have made a decent fist of uh, everyone says I love you as well oh yeah that's that's not too demanding you know things like Dr. Hackenbush you know it's it's a lot it's a lot for him to do isn't it but uh, everyone says I love you it's, you know well, there are a few songs that there's only one performance available you know like Groucho only sings I'm against it in Horse Feathers and those Duck Soup songs too we never hear him do those anywhere else so on one hand it would be nice to have an alternate 
version. But um, as you say, Matthew, those songs seem a little too uh, – the fast patter was no Bit longer Bit of a stretch, his, yeah. Yeah. Um, s- some of those Cavett shows that uh, you rightly point to as um, – better versions of a lot of what he did in these concerts uh he does sing uh he like he does a rendition of stay down here where you belong on the cavett show uh that is a lot more forceful and energetic than the version here in the rc book uh cavett says that he had proposed cutting a, a song called Heavens Above, which was to be sung with Aaron, um, which I guess was maybe there was more to the Heavens Above story than what made it onto the album. Um, or maybe it's a confusion of two song titles. I'm not sure. Um, but that seems to be a place. You know, I understand why this album was put out, you know, as sort of a historical document of, of this big event. But to really show what Groucho was, you know, capable of at this point, I think maybe what they should have gone for is something like, are you guys familiar with the, the album The Beach Boys Party? No, no. Okay, well, it's some album The Beach Boys did where they basically informally sat around and played some songs acoustically, very loose. They actually recreated a party. It wasn't, it wasn't real, but they created the, it sounded like it. But Groucho should have done something like that with a piano player and maybe 20 or 30 guests. And he could sing some of these old ditties and tell some of these jokes and just have it be very loose. And, you know, they could have taken their time recording it. And I, I really think this would have been the the perfect format to show what Groucho could still do and still bring at this age. Yeah, doesn't Steve Stolier in, in Raised Eyebrows talk about uh, an abandoned effort a little bit later on to do a TV special from Groucho's house? Where he really would yes. just be at home. Yes, uh, again, Erin again, isn't it? She she tries to tries to pitch the idea. Yeah, but in it, it would almost have been nice if they sort of thought of the album as as obviously uh, complementary to the shows, parallel to them, but but recorded separately. You know, so he's he's doing X number of live shows, and he's also recording an album uh, in his house. You know, over a series of nights, so there's loads of material to to choose from. Uh, and just and just take that take that heat off it. Yeah, it's interesting how the effect that being in the room with Groucho had on the audience at Carnegie Hall and and at these other concerts too has persisted. You know, um, as much as like we are all discussing our our mixed feelings about the record, you know, very candidly, but um, having you know been sort of squeezing everything out of the internet that I could find in the last week or so, it's pretty hard to find a public bad word about this record or or about the Carnegie Hall concert. Most people obligingly remember it as a magical night and, you know, um, and, and not as a disappointment and not as a, a point of concern, you know, for Groucho's welfare. Um, you know, and it, it did have the gravity of a big historical event. Um, every account tends to list some of the, you know, the star-spangled uh, audience, um, usually, uh, it's mentioned that Woody Allen and Diane Keaton were there together and Cavett went and sat with them after his intro. Mike Nichols, Art Garfunkel, Elliot Gould, Neil Simon, Jules Pfeiffer, Mayor John Lindsay and Senator Jacob Javits were all there. You know, just to breathe the same air in the same room with Groucho that evening was, uh, a kind of prize. Mm. Well, anyone who wants to listen to an evening with Groucho, will not have too much trouble finding it 
on the internet in various forms. It's no longer in print, but you can find the used vinyl uh, pretty easily on eBay and, and in other places. And our friends, uh, Mr. Bader and Mr. Ferrante, have been talking about the possibility of a remastered, possibly even expanded reissue. So does that mean that there are there are usable tapes of, you know, complete shows still? Because in terms of fan interest, um, you wonder if that would be more of an enticement. I would assume that they have pretty much all these shows available in the vault, you know, if they were recorded to put this album together. And even from the little bit we've heard from the San Francisco show, there were some nice little asides, nice little jokes that were left out. And maybe some of these could be put in back into the album and, you know, really give us a, a more solid show, even if it's not exactly the way it, it was performed at that time. Yeah. I mean, I, when I heard that there was the, the possibility as, as, as Frank and, and Robert have both said that there's the possibility of adding some extra material, I, I thought, oh, well, maybe they're talking about the San Francisco recordings that we know, you know, maybe they'll license a piece of that. But, you know, depending on how far they went with it, you could do a nice whole package of the living legend period and bring in some of the Cavett show material, um, and maybe some of the other later stuff. You know, and if this album is going to come out on CD, it really should be tightened up because they're really, you know, it was really put together with album sides in mind with like these big applause moments happening every, you know, 16 minutes or whatever it was, you know, maybe it just needs, it could be, a, it could be put together a bit tighter. And that reminds me, yeah. that reminds me I have to fess up here for, for a couple of years in my attempts to enjoy this album, I would play it at 45 RPM. <laughs> okay, to try it and help Groucho along here. <laughs> How does that sound? Well, we're going to find we, out right we have now. To drop some in at yeah. this point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Chico got a job at Clover Horn and Company. They used to manufacture paper, different kinds of paper. And Chico never brought home a salary because he was always in the pool room or he was someplace. And he never brought a salary. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's one way to get there. Yeah. <laughs> It's the Muppet Groucho no one's always dreamed about. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And now, of course, with digital technology, you could do a much better version of something like that. Chico got a job at Clava Horn and Company. They used to manufacture paper, different kinds of paper. And Chico never brought home a salary. Because he was always in the ballroom or someplace, and he never brought a salary. And my father told him, he says, next week, if you come home without your salary, I'll kill you. They had a very close relationship. <laughs> you know, there's something else I wanted to bring up uh, about the genesis of these shows and what might have uh, inspired it. In May of 1970, Groucho did an appearance at Northwestern University outside Chicago, where he appeared at the basketball arena in front of a big crowd of students and young people and basically did an hour of telling his stories and telling his jokes, and it went over very well. And I'm thinking perhaps this was called back to when they thought of doing these performances. But, you know, as I mentioned before, Groucho had been through a stroke or two since then. So, you know, maybe tr him trying to recreate that uh, 1970 performance was a bit beyond him at this point. Um, and sometime within the last year or so, I recall hearing that a recording of this Northwestern show does exist. So, you know, obviously that would be great to get a hold of, right? 
Yeah. Get in touch with John Tefteller immediately. I mean, that's the kind of thing that makes me most excited about the prospect of a, a remastered version. Like, you know, just sort of a cleaner version of the same material, you know, it'd be nice. But if there is, if there's additional material that might, that might elevate our sense. Yeah. I mean, that's really, that's the, the point I was making, uh, trying to make earlier. You know, it's just that the, the the, the the imperative need to please that 1972 audience or to pretend that Groucho is something in these shows that he isn't, it, it really isn't there anymore. And the interest in these recordings now are to, are to you know, hardcore Mark's devotees who know exactly what they're getting. Uh, and in that, in that context, I think more is more. But, you know, Frank is very protective of Groucho's legacy and image and not going to put anything out that doesn't shine the best of light on him. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you wouldn't want him, you know, literally dithering and and not, you know, the the, the obviously worthless sections could could go. But it, you know, the, the more reflective parts, the uh, you know, the, the less obviously crowd pleasing parts. Uh, hard to imagine as it is that there are any, um, you know, would would be good here. I think there is a certain power just in the voice and just hearing Groucho's voice, even in this state, which. As I said, when I first heard it, it took me a little while to sort of get used to the idea that this was Groucho's voice. But once you come to terms with it, um, there's no other sound like it in the world. And, you know, the, the, um, this period in Groucho's career, as much as we have to see it in comparison with his livelier and, and, and more prime years, mm-hmm. um, it does drive home, you know, how unique his instrument was. And how there's really nothing else like it in the world. And people do impressions of the older Groucho as a character unto itself. Um, you know, notably, uh, Gilbert Gottfried on his podcast is any, any opportunity to lapse into older Groucho and, and, um, and Steve Stolier in the audiobook of Raised Eyebrows and elsewhere, yeah. uh, really makes a showpiece of his, his rendition of the older Groucho. Um, and so, you know, that is a Groucho. It must be reckoned with. George Bettinger used to do a sketch with uh, the young Chico interacting with the old Groucho, which is a lovely idea. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, There's also something about, you know, we never really got any other Marx Brothers so publicly at this age, you know. This is um, Although we could have, because there were two two others still skulking about. But uh, one, obviously, you know, would have had nothing much to contribute but the other one you know is this tantalizing figure hiding behind the door who just refuses to get involved wouldn't it have been something if at this point in the 1970s if groucho and gomo had you know ended the way we began it find a a woman to perform with and go back to being the three nightingales just that one yeah just that one time you know i mean they'd only have to walk on at the end that's all they'd have to do (laughs) that's right but nope (laughs) you know you mentioned the chicago Show it was it was scheduled for Halloween night, nineteen seventy two, and tell, and I'm telling you, I would have been there had that show yeah, happened. Of course, so you I would have been let down a lot earlier than the album. Well, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. So if you had if you had seen Groucho in October of nineteen seventy two, what do you think? Do you, what do you think your reaction would have been? I mean, many people who were in that very position. They said exactly what everyone said who was at Carnegie Hall. Oh, it was magical. I, it was Groucho Marx. But, I mean, are you assuming he didn't have that stroke in September? Because he, that's where, you oh, know, that's true. it would have been after that. I, I, you know, That's a good I point. Mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'd be doing this podcast <laughs> if I caught this <laughs> in October. Yeah, the, 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 uh, 
October 31st was the announced date for Chicago, and October 22nd, there was supposed to be a concert in Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, they were announced at the same time as the, uh, the L.A. concert, which was uh, also canceled, but, but that one was postponed. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was the L.A. concert that some people described Groucho at some point either dropping the cue cards or the index cards or getting them mixed up and returning to the same material again. Hmm. Um, in fact, when I was uh, a teenager, I attended a Star Trek convention with a, a Trekkie friend of mine, and Brent Spiner was the featured speaker. And at the beginning of his uh, remarks, Spiner told a, a story about going to see Groucho in concert. I don't think he specified which venue, but it was obviously one of these concerts. And he, he told that story that Groucho had dropped the cute, the index cards and picked them up and repeated the same material and gotten laughs the second time just as strongly as the first time. Um, Spiner told that story in order to explain that he was going to be working from index cards. Um, but he added the disclaimer that unlike his material, Groucho's was actually funny. Um, but it really stood out to me because um, although I, I like Star Trek and have no problem with it, I was at the moment, I was sort of being dragged to this convention by a friend um, when all I was interested in at the time was classic comedy. And then we sat down for the Brent Spiner lecture. And the first thing he, he did was tell a Groucho Marx story. <laughs> he said, Groucho Marx is my hero as he is uh, any reasonable person's hero, something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, my own index cards, uh, I, I've, I've gotten through everything on my index cards here. Uh, any closing thoughts about uh, an evening with Groucho, the record, or the concerts? We could cross that off the list of podcasts we got to do. <laughs> <laughs> I notice it, it's like nutgrass. Every time I cross off a topic, two more pop up. It's like Go West. I've been digging at it for the whole uh, show here. But there are moments of it I, I really enjoy, and... You know, and I could look at the whole thing now in retrospect and have a good time listening to it. It's just that, you know, it just did not sit well with a young Marx fan circa 1972. Yeah, I think encountering it along with the Marx Brothers movies does a lot more damage to it mm -hmm. um, than just the experience of listening to it. And although I, one has to acknowledge all of the um, defects and the conflicted bittersweet feeling that it gives you um i i do love the record i'm i am glad it exists it's always been uh you know a sort of prized item in my collection and uh and i have listened to it I, you know i i will listen to it from time to time when i want to spend time with that groucho um among other things it's a reminder of his humanness you know that he was he was not a superhero mm. and he was subject to the same frailties and the same tragedy of of the human condition that we all are and um although the audience's reaction is certainly one of the phenomena of the album um it does make me feel good to hear him so loved mm -hmm. it must be strange now for um for Woody Allen, if he ever listens to it, to think that he's now older than, than Groucho was on the, on the recording. We'll have to ask him about that when we have him on the podcast. <laughs> um, and, uh, and by the way, any comic legends who may be listening right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible after the uh, Lincoln Courier piece, we may have more ears on us this week. So the possibility that Woody Allen or David Steinberg or Mel Brooks is listening right now has gone up considerably. Yeah. They're going to be beating our doors down. 
We'll take anybody. Andy Dick. Come on. Any, somebody. Call us. Come on. <laughs> uh, it's going to be Jay Hopkins again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that brings us down to the end of another Marx Brothers Council podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening to us uh, celebrate the work of these heroes of ours. Um, as for our closing music, I, I don't think we even need to introduce this selection, do we? Well, you just did, though. Ah! All right, next time I won't. Every morning at six o'clock, I go to my work. Overcoat buttoned up round my neck, no job would I shirk. Winter wines flow round my head, cutting up my face. I tell you what I'd like to have, my dear old father's place. Everybody works but father, and he sits round all day. Feet in front of the fire, smoking his pipe of clay. Mother takes in washing, so does Sister Anne. Everybody works at our house but my old man. A man named Work moved into town and father heard the news. With work so near, my father started shaking in his shoes. When Mr. Work walked by our house, he saw with great surprise my father sitting in his chair with blinders on his eyes. Everybody works but father, and he sits round all day. Feet in front of the fire, smoking his pipe of clay. Mother takes in washing, so does sister Ann. Everybody works at our house but my old man. holidays came around we all got presents sure father gave us good advice be happy though you're poor in father's stocking christmas morn i never will forget he found a 50 dollar bill he hasn't paid it yet Everybody was but father, and he sits round all day. Feet in front of the fire, smoking his pipe of flame. Mother takes in washing, so does sister Anne. Everybody was at our house but my old man. Marx Brothers Council podcast is hosted by Matthew Conium, Noah Diamond, and Bob Gassell, and is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Conium and Spugs, the annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, 
Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! Thank you.